Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for Wednesday, March 22nd. Coming up, we'll talk about the federal NDP tabling a new bill to eliminate for-profit long-term care by 2030. Plus, a long-awaited U.S. trial says the AstraZeneca vaccine is now 79% effective, and air travel drops just one month after quarantine rules, hotel quarantine rules, go into effect. All of that coming up right now on the pod. Okay, the federal NDP, they are set to table a bill today to eliminate for-profit long-term care by the year 2030. As we know, COVID-related deaths disproportionately hit for-profit long-term care. And joining us now for more on this is Dr. Ahmed Arya. He is a long-term care specialist, and he joins us here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Dr. Arya, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Nice to have you back with us. Uh, just first off, uh, what is your take on this uh, proposed bill by the NDP? Yeah, so I'm not an expert in legislative policy or legal matters, but I do agree uh, absolutely with the gist of the bill, which calls upon uh, you know the government to eliminate to work towards a plan to eliminating for-profit long-term care homes. I mean, we know through the pandemic that, you know, it's completely exposed to deadly conditions, uh, literally deadly conditions for people who live in these homes. People didn't just die from COVID-19, but they died from neglect and abandonment without enough food and water. And we have yet to see transparency and accountability in the system. I mean, the vast majority of people who are surveyed at this time, 86% of of people surveyed in in a recent report said that they want long-term care to be part of Canada's publicly funded health care system. Yeah. Is the problem uh, here, is it with for-profit homes, for-profit long-term care, Dr. Aria, or is the problem with uh, regulation? Because as we now uh, well know now that regulators, uh, they were cut uh, by government. Many were not even uh, going into long-term care uh, homes that they were assigned to. So is the problem that the government needs to be maybe more vigilant in enforcing uh, the regulations? Yeah. So, I mean, that's absolutely part of the of the situation. And it's kind of like a chicken and the egg question here. I mean, uh, I'll remind everyone that um, it's actually, you know, these powerful corporations, the for profit long term care corporations that have this lobby, uh, which influences government, sadly, more than, you know, sort of, you know, the well-being of seniors or the voices of seniors, family caregivers and, uh, you know, frontline health workers in these facilities. And they have fought for decades to deregulate staffing standards, to deregulate inspections which have been shown to be absolutely, you know, chaotic and catastrophic, you know, and, and, and absolutely catastrophic during the pandemic. So once again, it just shows that we cannot put profits over people. Yeah. What is it? I mean, you know, these facilities intimately. What is it that the not-for-profit uh, long-term care, what is it that they're doing that the uh, for-profit I- is not? I mean, is it just a case uh, of the profit motive just doesn't work when it comes to uh, providing the, the best conditions for our elderly? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And we now have well-established research, which looks as to why for-profit long-term care homes fared so much worse during the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, the first issue is around uh, overcrowding. I mean, these homes had decades to renovate their facilities. Uh, Literally, they have design standards since the 1970s. And what that means is that since that time, uh, they were given notice in the 1990s, I believe, or about 20 years ago, something ridiculous like that. But they still have three or four people living together in one room. And they're waiting for public taxpayer money to renovate their rooms. Um, The second issue, which is really important, is that they generate revenue by keeping their health workers, their frontline health workers, poor. 
And they're more likely to have part-time casual staff, uh, more likely to hire agency staff in a crisis who work in multiple homes. And that obviously affects the care of the residents. And the third issue is really around, you know, something we've spoken about already, Jeff, transparency and accountability, where they've worked so hard to deregulate staffing and inspections, which is absolutely the opposite of what we need. I mean, there's a big taxpayer accountability issue. Of course, there's a safety issue for the well-being of our elders. And these are people who have given back to society. And that's number one. But I would also like to point out the taxpayer issue where these homes are actually subsidized through the public dollar basically they end up owning the house after we all pay the mortgage Mm. so having said all of that was this what we have seen in for-profit long-term care during the pandemic i mean sadly was all of this foreseeable I mean, I think so. I mean, there's, uh, you know, data that shows from before the pandemic that for-profit long-term care homes did much worse when compared to um, sort of not-for-profit or municipal homes. So, for example, um, they showed that uh, people living in for-profit long-term care homes had a 10% higher risk of dying and a 20%, a 25% higher risk of hospitalization. And for-profit long-term care homes were twice as likely to be in the lowest performing 20% of long-term care homes. So we already knew that there was a gap and care between these different models and the COVID-19 just completely exposed it and showed uh, once again how for-profit long-term care in itself is a risk for the people we love and care for. And when we talk about improving long-term care long-term and making sure that the residents there are as safe as uh, possible uh, moving forward, I mean you and I have talked about things like a better design of uh, new homes, uh, better living settings, also of course with the covid better ventilation systems, and all of that obviously uh, costs money. And when you're running a for-profit center, that's uh, the one thing that uh, you're keeping your eye on are your expenses, your costs. Yeah, I mean, once again, it's more than dollars and cents here. I mean, we have to really prioritize the you know the well-being of seniors, people with disabilities, and the health workers um, as a priority. And many many Canadians, obviously, I think, would be willing to pay some more money into something like a national long-term care insurance. But definitely, one of the crisis issues that we have to deal with is this issue of for-profit long-term care homes. I mean, at the least, we shouldn't be allowing new homes to be run by for-profit corporations, and we should be looking to any opportunity to sort of making long-term care public and gradually moving this sector in that direction because we know once again that I mean we have to make sure that the care of our vulnerable seniors the people we care for matters more than shareholders. Just finally uh, how big of a turnaround would this be this NDP bill that is uh, being tabled Uh, they're saying they want to eliminate for-profit long-term care by 2030 which sounds futuristic Uh, you know it's a long time in the future but it's really not that far off right I mean uh, we're looking at basically what eight and a half years yeah yeah I mean I can tell you some of the Ontario perspective um, which is where sort of I live of course and where we're all I'm assuming the majority of our listeners are I mean there's many long-term care homes which are set to have their licenses expire so that may be an opportunity to sort of move them towards more of the public system Um, there are some municipalities where they're actually willing to take over homes Uh, we know that I mean under the Ontario long-term care homes act I mean they have the ability to take away licenses Uh, they have the ability you know the ability to permanently take away licenses 
cases. So, I mean, I don't know why that wasn't done in some of these egregious circumstances where there was clear neglect and abandonment. I mean, in any other circumstance, Jeff, that would have been criminal not to, you know, do that. So, uh, you know, once again, taking away licenses in some circumstances is one way. And the other thing which um, I wanted to briefly point out is that, I mean, the NDP's um, sort of bill or uh, motion which they're proposing talks about Rivera. And Rivera is, is a private for-profit long-term care home, which is in a unique situation because it's actually owned by the federal government. It's owned by sort of the pension fund for the public sector, right, for the federal civil service. So the federal government is actually, you know, actually has this unique opportunity to actually start with Rivera and make all the Rivera homes, uh, you know, bring them under the public system as the majority of Canadians uh, are requesting. All right. We will obviously watch this with interest as it moves forward. Uh, Dr. Arya, before we let you go here this afternoon, I'd be remiss if I did not ask you. It's another gorgeous uh, afternoon here. Highs in the mid-teens, sunny skies. We've seen that uh, throughout the weekend. Yet our seniors in long-term care still unable to get outdoors and enjoy it. Is it time basically to, to set them free? Is there any reason why seniors in long-term care that have been, for the most part, fully vaccinated can't be outdoors. Yeah, so I see no reason that people have to be in solitary confinement at this time. I mean, solitary confinement, social isolation, loneliness, these things in themselves uh, lead to bad health outcomes and actually lead to premature death, to be honest. So, I mean, you're you're very right, Jeff. I mean, the vast majority of residents, over 95%, have received the COVID-19 vaccine. Actually, they've already received two doses of the vaccine. I mean, the second wave, thankfully, is over in long-term care. So, I mean, we have to let people out and let them enjoy the sunshine, um, you know, let them enjoy some fresh air as we would want to. And, you know, part of the reason for this is because, you know, the median life expectancy in long-term care homes in Ontario is just 18 months. So people are going there for the last months and years, and this may be their last summer that they would enjoy, their last chance to see their grandchildren, the last time to celebrate a family birthday or religious event. So it has to be about quality of life. All right. Dr. Ahmed Arya, Dr. Arya, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much, Jeff. Stay well. Dr. Ahmed Arya is a long-term care specialist. Okay, big news on the vaccine front earlier this morning. A long-awaited trial in the U.S. is over, and it says that AstraZeneca is actually 79% effective. Have a listen to this. 79% efficacy of preventing symptomatic COVID-19, and it was 100% effective against stopping severe or critical disease and hospitalization. Notably, the trial also showed similar efficacy results in people over the age of 65 with vaccine efficacy of 80%. All right. And joining us now is Dr. Michael Gardam, an infectious diseases doctor, and he joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Dr. Gardam, nice to have you on this afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. This long-awaited U.S. trial now saying that AstraZeneca is 79% effective. Why is this so much higher? Do we know than previous trials that cited only 62% efficacy? Yeah. I mean, part of it was the uh, where the trial was done. So uh, part of the original trial was done in South Africa where they had uh, over 80% of their cases were already the South African variant, where we know that all of the vaccines don't work as well as, uh, against it. But if you pulled out data from other parts of the world, it was very much closer to this 79% number. I mean, I think for me, this study is just confirming what I think almost everybody in this field 
knew, but we didn't have proof. And it's confirming that the vaccine is actually really good, which is very good news. All right. So this is the uh, new number to go by uh, for those here in Canada that are getting AstraZeneca. 80% efficacy is, is kind of the new number. Yeah, well, there's sort of two numbers there, right? The 80% is for any sort of symptoms of uh, COVID-19. But the, the, to me, the number that really matters is the essentially 100% for severe illness, people being hospitalized and dying from this. So, you know, I think if you put it into perspective, if uh, you or I had a little bit of the sniffles after we got the vaccine and it turns out that was covid that's not going to have a massive impact on our life. What really matters is, you know, are we going to be hospitalized or are we going to die from this? And in this case, this vaccine is as good as, as all the other vaccines that are on the market. All right. So having said that, Dr. Gardam, as you well know, there's been some trust issues around AstraZeneca with a lot of mixed messaging uh, from around the world when it comes to its uh, use. Do you think that this is going to help uh, this news today in this uh, U.S. trial? Is this going to help overcome that challenge? It will, it will certainly help. I think we have a long ways to go, right? I mean, I, I sort of describe the AstraZeneca vaccine as the vaccine that just cannot catch a break. It's had a number of challenges as it's been rolled out, starting with the original trials that were, they oddly made a mistake in their actual dosing schedule. So that, you know, that was odd. And then they had issues with uh, things in the German media saying it didn't work at all. And then you had nasty statements about over the age of 65, and most recently, the issue surrounding, you know, could people have an increased risk of blood clots? I mean, there's been a lot going on with this vaccine, but ultimately, what this trial showed is that it works as well as all the other ones, and there was no increased in- incidence of any serious side effects in this trial as well. So I look at this and say, this is the, you know, the, the evidence that we need to say this is a really well functioning vaccine that is easy to give to people and also uh, doesn't have any really any significant side effects that we need to worry about on a regular basis. was just about to ask you about that. It works as well as the other ones and AstraZeneca does not need any special refrigeration. So do you think that this is going to become AstraZeneca the global choice uh, going forward for vaccines? Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. This was always kind of seen as the world's vaccine because it was something that, you know, many countries could make. They didn't need special facilities for it. It only needs to sit in the fridge. And so this was always kind of seen as as the probably the, the vaccine that was going to be given to the world, whereas the mRNA vaccines were sort of trial vaccines. We didn't have a lot of experience with them, et cetera. And at the beginning of this, nobody was sure exactly how much of a, of a role they were going to play. So, you know, I'm hoping that people will feel confident getting the AstraZeneca vaccine. I've made it very clear publicly that when it comes time for me to be vaccinated, I am very happy to receive the AstraZeneca vaccine. You know, so this is, I'm hoping, a step in the right direction. And do you think this is also going to help us when it comes to our concerns regarding the supply chain? We had Premier Ford's press conference uh, on the air uh, last hour. He mentioned that uh, several times problems with the uh, supply chain and a what he called a guaranteed uh, supply chain. So do you think that uh, AstraZeneca is really going to help us when it comes to those supply chain issues? Well, I think it will, because, I mean, every new vaccine that we bring on board. So now we have four licensed in Canada, right? Some are made in the U.S., some are made in Europe. Uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine we're using is made in India. The more that we can, you know, spread around where we're getting these vaccines, it, it means that, you know, 
every once in a while you hear rumblings from the EU saying they may block the export of vaccines. Well, okay, but we're getting them from other suppliers as well. So, you know, in, in, in circumstances like a pandemic, it, it really is a good idea to have multiple suppliers. And that is one thing that Canada has done very well. So bringing this vaccine online as well should just make that a bit easier. All right. Starting uh, today, uh, many provinces across the country, including here in Ontario, they are widening the age range for the uh, vaccine. Those 75 plus can now go online and book an appointment. 60 plus can go to a pharmacy if they can find one that still has a supply of a vaccine. Uh, What what is your take on uh, where we're at uh, right now uh, when it comes, uh, Dr. Gardam, to uh, the vaccination rollout and uh, expanding these uh, these age groups or categories? Yeah, I mean, you know, up until now, things have been, uh, you know, somewhat creaky. And I would say that's not entirely any particular government's fault. A lot of it relates to the supply chain issues. It relates to approvals. Uh, You know, it was a couple months ago we had that, you know, significant decrease in the Pfizer vaccine for several weeks. And when you have a limited supply, then you have to try to pick and choose who you're giving it to, which also makes it much more complicated. Right. As opposed to the flu shot every year where we just say anybody who wants one, get a flu shot. This is far more and more complicated to roll out. That being said, we are going to have a lot of vaccine available in Canada over the next few weeks. And so, you know, a lot of the challenges we've had recently with people not being able to find vaccine, those are largely going to go away. I think we we may be in a situation a few months from now where we have more vaccine than people actually want. And so we will, you know, that's where really encouraging people to get out uh, to get vaccinated will be very important. Right now, we have far less supply than we have demand, but that is going to switch in the coming weeks to months. I think a lot of people are looking forward to that uh, situation uh, turning around. And when it does, do you think, Dr. Gardam, that we also need to expand the different avenues, if you will, that people can uh, get a shot I know south of the border in the States, uh, dentists have been giving out the uh, vaccine, veterinarians as well. Is that something that we should look at to open up uh, opportunities for people to get this vaccine from uh, anyone who uh, can give a needle? I mean, I think that, you know, there, there may be options like, like that. Some of the vaccines, like the, the Pfizer in particular, is not a vaccine that is easy to give to people because of the uh, freezer requirements. But especially for the AstraZeneca and the uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine, those we should be distributing as, as, as widely as possible. Now, we do have a, a very good network in Canada of uh, pharmacists giving out flu shots, for example. And if we were to really activate that, as well as public health clinics, hospital clinics, family doctors, offices, nurse practitioners, you know, we may be able to get a lot of vaccine to a lot of people quite, quite quickly. Whether we need to dip into other uh, professions vaccinating, I think, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me to say whether we would need to do that or not. But it is it is good to see what other countries are doing. And if the U.S. has 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 gone down that road, it'll be helpful for Canada you know, to learn from that if we are to go down that to go that route. All right. Just finally, uh, hopefully ending on a bit of a hopeful note here. Uh, We heard on the uh, weekend that new data in this country shows a drop in cases for people over 80, fewer outbreaks in long-term care. As we know, uh, most, if not all, in long-term care received both doses of the uh, vaccine. Do you anticipate uh, with uh, more supply coming that there's more good news in the weeks to come for all of us? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of our news has been taken over by, you know, concern about variants, et cetera. And it's certainly appropriate to be looking at those and worried about them. But, you know, right now we have four vaccines licensed in the country that work uh, extremely well, including against the UK variant, which is by far the most common one that we're dealing with right now. So I think that, you know, a month or two from now, things are going to feel quite different. We still won't have herd immunity in Canada, but I believe we will be able to start loosening up some of our restrictions, especially as it relates to long-term care and uh, retirement homes. Because as we're seeing, people are well, well protected. And so we need to start changing our, uh, changing our plans as uh, more and more people get vaccinated. You bet. Dr. Michael Gardam, infectious diseases doctor. Dr. Gardam, appreciate the time. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Travel expert Marty Firestone, he joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Marty, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, Let's start with this uh, new data from the Border Services Agency that says air travel, Marty, is down a month after the hotel quarantine rule came into effect. Marty Firestone, just how shocked are you? Not at all. Actually, nothing surprises me. This did affect people's decision to travel, no doubt, with respect to, of course, the combination of the Caribbean and the other areas where the flights were stopped. But now people really had to think about going away March break to have to come back and do the three-day hotel quarantine amongst the remaining 14-day quarantine. So it did, if that's what the intent was, it did have an effect on people's traveling. Well, the number of people flying into the country dropped by almost 55% since this uh, hotel quarantine rule came into effect. Are you surprised? I don't think anybody's surprised, Marty, that travel is down, but that is down by that much? Well, here's the thing. If you think about it, the majority of these snowbirds, and I always refer to them because they are the bulk of what had left to go to the States at some point, hundreds of thousands of them are starting to return home now. So the question is, they had airline plans to fly home, but in order to avoid that three-day hotel quarantine, they've now found a way to come across a land border and not having to face it. Yeah. Does that loophole, do you think, does it need to be closed? Will it be closed? Because I know an analysis by us here at the Global News of these uh, stats released by the Border Service Agency found that between the 1st of February and the 21st, just before more stringent measures were implemented, there were a total of 115,000 travelers by air and half a million uh, by land. And you've got to believe that there's more coming across this land border now that you can skip the hotel quarantine if you do so. Yeah, I don't think we've even seen the final numbers yet. You just wait and see what happens now as all of them return home, let's say, uh, end of March, early April. The bottom line is they can't close this loophole. And the reason is you've got 117 border crossings. Unlike airports, they could put everybody through four major airports, but they can't start telling people now they've got to only cross over four land borders. And of course, how would they have hotels right at those land borders for you to be able to drive to right from the border? So answer to your question, I do not see ever a three-day hotel quarantine being implemented at a land border. All right. So having said that, does this not make this whole hotel quarantine really useless, a fruitless endeavor? Because how many people have changed their travel plans to come back to the country instead of landing here in Toronto? They're landing in Buffalo. They're landing in Detroit and coming across the land border. Yeah, they're doing that. And also there are a whole bunch that had, I have subsequently found out their cars shipped down to 
Florida or wherever they are and driving home when they never had an intention of driving home but are now because they're avoiding the quarantine. So that's a whole other route. You've either got the border city stop and then have someone come pick you up or you rent a car and drive over or you have your physical car shipped down to where you are and drive it home. That's that's how crazy the whole thing's getting right now. Yeah. By the way, Marty, do we know where the lawsuit that was launched by the Canadian Constitution Foundation, where that is? We are hearing uh, some reports that uh, we might get a decision as early as uh, this afternoon. I know they were in court back on uh, Friday looking for an injunction against this uh, quarantine program. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure exactly when there's going to be an announcement, but at the end of the day, I still think the government's position is is that they did not have to tell people prior to them going away because they weren't supposed to go away. So I don't know how this will all wash out, but at the end of the day, they really don't feel responsible for any of the things they're doing now because you know what? They told people not to travel, and the consequences that are coming as a result of travel now, such as this three-day hotel quarantine, are just sort of par for the course. So I don't know what will happen, and I can't imagine anything's going to change and they're going to take away that hotel quarantine nor the border opening that is the biggest threat right now is when is that border going to open because as long as it remains closed not a lot's going to happen yeah we had the canadian constitution foundation on a few weeks back when this lawsuit uh, was announced when it was uh, launched and basically i think the argument marty comes down between uh, personal liberties rights and freedoms uh, they're arguing on behalf of some complainants that the government has no right to basically imprison its own uh, citizens. And I guess on the other side, the government would argue that, listen, this is extraordinary times. We're in the midst of uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, public health crisis we've ever seen, and the government needs to take extraordinary measures. Yeah, but those extraordinary measures, and this is what people have to understand, it is not safe to be congregating in a hotel lobby the way we're seeing stories now and being in this room. You'd be better off, I fully agree with this, that you would be better off to land, do your testing as you're supposed to pre and post, and then go to your own home and quarantine. I think that's a lot safer than sitting in a hotel room for three days with lots of people. That's a problem. Yeah. Do you know, uh, Marty, as the travel industry, has there been some discussions? Have we got any inkling from a government as the uh, vaccine uh, rollout is expected to really ramp up over the next uh, few weeks? Has there been at least preliminary discussions about uh, when this quarantine program might come to an end? None at all. I, I think that they have no intention of tying it into spring break. I think it's going to continue past spring break, and it is not going to be taken off, I suspect, until our borders are opened up and That could still be months away from everything you're reading at this point. All right. Our travel expert, Marty Firestone, with us on this Monday afternoon. Marty, thanks for the time as always. Appreciate it. Thanks again for having me. All right. Stay well.